good morning. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and before I do that, I just want to sort of tell you where we are in our uh, sermon series this week. We um, are working our way through a book by an author named Mark Middleberg, and he uh, takes up several questions through the through a survey of Christians in the United States of questions that they hope their friends will not ask them you get where he's going with that and so we've taken up you know everything from the existence of God to evolution and abortion uh, the reliability of the Bible the person of Christ and today we come to uh, what perhaps is the most controversial question in the series, and it's the issue of homosexuality. And so we're going to uh, take a look at, at God's Word and what it has to say to this issue and to our own hearts as we relate to this issue. And uh, before we do that, I'm going to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. So just in case you were not aware, the question that we're talking about today can be a little bit controversial, right? Ask, I don't know, Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty, if you followed that uh, whole crazy thing. Um, you know, and uh, I, I sat down last night and read the actual article that, that you know, caused the storm that, that broke over that. Can I just say this? No one on earth should be surprised by what a Cajun, redneck, duck-hunting, evangelical Christian says. This is a known <laughs> quantity. And actually, if you, if you read what he says in context, he was very clear. These were not hateful statements. He did not belittle anyone. He did not say anything remotely like, uh, you know, well, I wish the, all the gays would die or something. He didn't say anything like that. In fact, he was, he was very clear to, to state in his comments that he loves everyone. And he even rolled that out a little bit to some unlikely uh, candidates for his, I guess, Christian affection. And yet... When he said something as simple as, I, I believe that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong, there's this enormous recoil effect in society. He gets temporarily, I guess, canceled from his own show, which is a little bit random. And if I can make another aside comment, um, A&E is profiting off of Phil's faith. And now they're going to turn around and pretend to cancel him because of his faith. This is a grave inconsistency. And, and I guess it sort of shows you what happens when you, when you put yourself in this position of trying to profit on the one hand from one thing and trying to distance yourself from that same thing on the other hand. You, I think... It was Jesus who actually said, you cannot serve two masters. And uh, A&E learned that question very clearly. And I, I don't know, they, they recoiled that. They, they retracted that with that suspension or whatever because 
they have 14 million people watching their show. Um, yeah, you get the idea. Um, you know, and, and we saw a similar uh, little outburst with Chick-fil-A a couple of years ago. Um, so let's try to let's try to open God's word and understand what what is uh, I guess our response to this question this question of why do we condemn homosexuals when it's clear that God made gays and that he loves all people the same um all right we're going to begin where we began with the kids. Um, you know, I think if you haven't figured this out yet, the children's chat is really for you. They get it. Our dull minds take a little longer. So I, I try to take the most important stuff and, and put it in the children's chat. And then maybe, you know, repetition aids learning. Maybe you and I will get it eventually. So I want to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 10. Uh, Jesus is explaining himself to his followers, and he says this uh, not-so-cryptic thing. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That little statement does a lot of things. It, it does a lot. Um, First of all, it, it teaches us that Jesus cares about lost people, about the people outside of the bounds of his family. There was a, a, a misconception in first century Jewish thinking that God cared primarily about the people in his family. And that was almost taught at the expense of the value of people outside of God's family, if you follow where I'm going with that. And so it created very much a we versus they um, mentality. Jesus is trying to take this little following of Jewish people and turn their faith on its head. And he's trying to get a point across to them that he cares about the lost, about the people who are broken and downtrodden and oppressed and forgotten, uh, the people that are otherwise ostracized or belittled, that those people matter to him, the people outside the circle of the found, if you will. So, this statement also reminds us that we are all lost people. We all start out on level ground. We are all equally lost before God. Um, and then God finds us and changes our hearts. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the one who seeks. He's the one who pursues the human soul. He's the one who is out actively looking for the lost. God finds us 
and changes our hearts. And then he calls us to join him in seeking the lost. We are to be his instruments for getting outside of these doors and into the world and bringing the grace and truth of his love through Jesus Christ to bear on the world around us. That's why we're here. That's why he calls us together is only to send us out that we can be a force for good and grace in this world. And so this little bitty statement does a lot to shape really every question that we face as Christians. That we are called to be those who join God in his value of seeking and saving the lost. All right. Everyone's favorite verse, right? Or favorite memory verse or favorite end zone verse or you get it. We're going to read it in part of its context. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the second part of its context. The conversation that leads into this verse is very informative as well. I I commend it to you. Just start at the beginning of John chapter 3. Read Jesus' weird conversation with the Pharisee named Nicodemus and and see how that whole approach frames this verse, which is a great verse, but is often sort of ripped out of its context, um, as most most good Bible verses usually are. But I commend that context to you, but what I'm looking at today is sort of the follow-up context to John 3.16. So we're going to start in uh, the first part of that passage in verse 16 and read through verse 24. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So I want to turn to this idea of judgment and condemnation, because that's sort of embedded in the question that we're looking at today, that why do Christians condemn homosexuals or homosexuality? Um, And I want to talk about uh, sort of these two biblical ideas of judgment and condemnation and what they mean and what they don't mean and what their parameters are. First of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about condemnation. This passage is abundantly clear on that point. 
our major as God's students is not judgment and condemnation. That's not what we were put here for. That's not what Jesus came to this earth to do. Uh, To put that in, in simple terms, we took care of that all by ourselves. We did not need God's help in bringing condemnation and judgment upon ourselves through sin. Okay? So this goes back to the classic, you know, perfect God, holy, pure, righteous God, unholy, impure, unrighteous people. And, and how on earth can those two things be reconciled? Because as soon as you mix that which is imperfect together with that which is perfect, you no longer have anything that is perfect, righteous, holy, and pure. So in that, in that uh, reality, Jesus tells us we've already covered that base. The condemnation of our souls was done by us. We took care of that, and we are all in the same sinking boat. Okay? That's the human reality from which we are all called out of as Jesus seeks us out and saves us from that place. So, Okay, condemnation is our mutual starting point. The gospel is not about judgment. Um, Condemnation is our mutual starting point. Um, So, let me be clear. The Christian message is not that homosexuals are condemned by God. That's not our message. Our message is that all of us stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. That may not sound like good news to you, okay? That's not the the type of uh, truth that puts a smile on everyone's face. But it's very important for two reasons. One, that we, we live in the humility of recognizing that we're all in the same boat. We all have the same beginning point. And two, as we just sang a little while ago, we cannot save ourselves. And so this recognition of our, our sin and the condemnation that that brings upon our souls is extremely important as a beginning point. A beginning point is not a major. A beginning point is not a goal. A beginning point is not the point. It is the departure point. And so we all share this common beginning, this starting point. But ultimately, the gospel, as Jesus explains it here, is about God's love and salvation for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. And so, we must not, we may not condemn any group of people apart from ourselves. Does that make sense? That's not our job. 
that's not the purpose of the gospel. Um, and, you know, sort of jumping back to, to Phil Robertson for a minute, um, you know, he was, he was accused of being homophobic and, and hate, being, you know, hate speech and all these things that, that came out in the wake of what he said. Um, I don't see hate in that man. I don't see it. And and so what is going on? Why is he being misunderstood? And I want to I want to sort of take us down uh, that road as well. Um this this tension between being people who are called to to love and being people who are called to a higher moral standard. Okay, so let's take a look at this at this difference. Um, I'm going to take us to Ephesians chapter five, verses one through three, and uh, it beautifully pulls this tension out between our call to be loving and our call to be pure or holy or righteous or whatever impossible calling that is on both sides of the pole, right? So here we go. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Do you feel the pull there in those words? Do you, do you see that? This, this um, tension between our call to love and our call to stand for righteousness or, or moral purity or holiness or whatever the word is. There's a tension there. And, you know, Jesus lived that tension perfectly. We will not. We will step off one side of the plank or the other. But at the end of the day, I think we're to live in that tension between, let's say, people whom we love and the things that we and those people do that we don't love. Okay, so let's try to unpack this just a little bit. We are called to both love and purity. That's part of our calling as Christians. We are called to be loving beyond what we expect of other people. And we are called to be pure or holy or righteous beyond what we expect from other people. That does not mean that we think of ourselves primarily as righteous. That's not cool. Right, we we think of ourselves primarily as as wrecks, um, as disasters morally, and that's our starting point. But our our goal, what we're moving toward, is something that reflects the nature of who Christ is, both in terms of love, as well as in terms of purity. So we are then to love as Christ loved. 
And I love the I love the language that Paul uses here, a fragrant offering that we are to be pleasant to the lives and hearts of those people around us. Not hateful, not rude, not bigoted, but pleasant. We are to give off that smell that makes others relax, perhaps. We're to love as Christ loved, but we are not to practice or condone immoral behavior. All right? Um, you know, probably the, the easiest illustration, um, I mean, really, pick any of the last six Ten Commandments. Okay? Just pick one. Anyone? Anyone? Murder. Okay? Um, that's a great one, actually, because we all get it in that sense, that it is fair to say we all agree murder is wrong. Okay? Does that mean that God hates murderers? No. Not necessarily. I mean, not not in the sense that we're talking about it. And it doesn't mean that we are to hate people who murder. Um, you know, I, I've got a, a very dear friend of mine who uh, lives in the greater St. Louis area, and he does jail ministry at his county jail. And he runs across all kinds of people in there, right? Um, and it's great, it, it's great, exposure for him it's a great challenge for him to sit down with these men who've done all kinds of awful things and just love express God's love to them and and be caring and and present in their in their pain and in their isolation um the fact that we can say that murder is wrong does not mean that we hate anyone these are, these are not uh, mutually dependent clauses. We can say that something is wrong, and we can say to the person who's done that thing, I love you. Okay? All right. So we're called to love in purity, to love as Christ loved. We're not to practice or condemn immoral behavior. The, the, I, I <laughs> you might have noticed, I, I don't, like a lot of cheesy, pithy statements, but I think this one fits in this context and it, and it expresses this verse well, that we can love the sinner and hate the sin. Okay? We can love people who do all kinds of stuff that we might not choose to do, um, but we don't have to like what they do. These are not mutually dependent clauses. All right. So, I think a big part of this problem, how many of you like to be uh, uncomfortable? Hmm, not really. We had to buck up for the good chairs, right? Because I didn't want to hear you complaining. Um, no one likes discomfort. God seems to love it. He seems to love 
the fact that we are uncomfortable. He doesn't seem bothered by this at all. And so he puts us in this tension in every facet of life. He's going somewhere with us, primarily, as he calls us to be his voice to seek and save those whom he's caring to add to our numbers. Um, So the tension between love and purity, when we get down to an issue like homosexuality, we tend, as humans, to, to run towards one end or the other because we don't like the tension. We don't like the unsettled nature of that tension. We don't like not knowing which way we're going to be pulled next. And so we, we, for the sake of our own comfort, we either step over here and say, we love all people and we accept and condone whatever they want to do. Or we step over here and we say, well, we don't really care about those people and what they're doing is wrong. When, when somewhere over here in the middle is, I love you. I don't really like what you're doing, but I love you. And it's hard to argue with love. It's really hard to argue with love when it's expressed well over time. Um, let's, let's get a little bit deeper into some of the, the moral complexity of the issue. And I think this is another place where most of us don't really understand what is at stake and what the argument really is and, and, and what the issues really are. And I, I, I will apologize to you in advance. We don't have time to go all the way into this, but we can come back to this topic later. Uh, we're, we're in a small group right now that's exploring this complexity uh, pretty in, in pretty good depth, actually, uh, at the St. Peter's on Tuesday nights. But um, I want to read to you a passage from that, that Jesus used to clarify a, a question he was asked about divorce. And then we're going we're gonna to sort of take those words and let them give shape. And I'm, I've got a little background verse listed there of Genesis 127 where God created us male and female, just for your reference. But here's, here's what Jesus said in response to a, he was getting pressed on a question about divorce. He answered, Have you not read that he, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and, and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here's the, the central sort of biblical position as best I can simply articulate it. That biblical marriage reflects the image and nature of God. That is, when man and woman come together in union, in marriage, that complexity reflects the image and nature of who God is. God exists eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he created us, he created us with two genders to reflect that complexity of his nature. 
It doesn't fully reflect it. It doesn't perfectly reflect it. But that's part of created order. That's the way God made us. Um, Okay. So biblical marriage reflects the image and nature of God. Biblical marriage includes one man and one woman. We, as Christians, should have been the first when the AIDS epidemic was was emerging in the 80s, and we, as the church, summarily dismissed virtually all of those people as getting what they deserved. That was the church's response in America in large part at that time. And one of the one of the awarenesses that emerged among homosexuals who were going through these crises with their partners was they would get to the point of critical care in the hospital and the partner had no rights by which they could make medical decisions on behalf of their loved one okay that is a horrific place to be i don't care who you are and we should have recognized the the human tragedy that was taking place. We should have responded with compassion and care. We should have been the first to create a quick and legal pathway for those people to take care of each other according to who they love on their own terms because they're human beings, and we'll get to that point in a second. Um, we failed. And in large part, we alienated from our voice, if you will, our moral voice as a church, an entire cross-section of people. So much so, they, they now call themselves a community. That community, that gay community, formed in large part because we pushed them into the corner. We did not say, come in here, we know what love is. We know how to care. We know how to express concern. We know how to advocate for people in need. We said, get the hell out of here and don't come near my kids, is what we said. Um, And so that formation of identity as a community is largely our fault, if I can be so bold. Um, all right, and, and I'll, I'll, if you want to argue that, just go back to the 70s. No one ever said the term gay community in the 70s. There wasn't one. They, it was just free love. Yeah, that was uh, a little spillover from the 60s. So, um, okay. Going back to this point that Jesus makes, is, you know, we have, we have in large part lost this debate in our society because of the way we started the whole response to this group of people. The debate over gay marriage should never have had a chance to arise. And now it's, it's too late, quite frankly. We're, we're not going to win this one. It's good, this, these dominoes are going to keep falling. And here's the issue. That biblically, this created in the image of God, male and female, and the way that reflects the nature and image of God is the point. 
It's part of our created order. Uh, Unfortunately, because we've lost our voice, that argument has no weight in our culture anymore. Um, And so marriage is is being redefined. We we shouldn't have let that happen, but okay, it's happened. Um, We can still define marriage for ourselves, but we've lost our voice to define what marriage means for society. Um, Maybe that's, you know, reattainable i don't know but uh that that is the central issue here in gender and identity is this male and female and when culture that disagrees with that point or is uncomfortable with that point or what have you is winds up in opposition to us they're never going to give us that point they're just not going to. And, and I would argue that's our fault. We, we should have been more loving. We can be more loving. We can regain ground in that sense. Okay. So that male and female aspect of creation, that is derived from God's wisdom and God's design, not ours. And so... When I say that we were created male and female in the image of God and that that's the basis for biblical marriage, I'm not saying that because I hate anyone. I'm saying that because it's been true since God created us. And that's just part of his created order. And I don't, I don't hate anyone who disagrees with me. Um, I don't really care if you agree with me or not. Uh, my job is to sit before the word of God and ask the question, what are you teaching me? What are you calling me to? What do you want me to change? Who do you want me to be? And, and then to be as transparent as I can with that before you. So this is God's wisdom, God's design, not ours to change. Um, but here's the other side of the, of the created in the image of God issue. That every single one of us All people have God-given dignity. And when we transgress the human dignity of others, shame on us. Shame on us. When we belittle, when we um, deride, when we express bigotry or hatred or any of these things towards any other human being, Shame on us. Because we, do you remember where we started? We are moral wrecks. We are moral shipwrecks. That's who we are. And so for us to turn and, and, and shout condemnation over anyone else is just crazy. Shame on us. So, okay. All people have God-given dignity. That's Judeo-Christianity 101, right? Um, Jesus reinforces both sides of that point, that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that whether someone agrees with that or disagrees with that, they still have human dignity that must be respected. Um, 
Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. There are numerous passages in the Old and New Testaments that make it clear that are immoral. We're going to just take a look at one and, and bounce off of that for just a second. From 1 Corinthians 5, to receive the grace of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? There's no statement in here that says, um, you know, salvation is by grace alone unless you're gay. Then you have to stop before you can accept Christ. Okay? And when we, when we tacitly do that, we, we are, that is huge. Then we're getting in the way of the gospel. And that's one road I don't want to be standing in the middle of uh, unless I'm moving at the same speed as Christ. Um, all right. The blood of Jesus is that which cleanses the unrighteous. Gay sinners are no different from any other sinners. We're all in the same boat. We all have the same starting point. Anyone, anyone, any human being can be sought and saved by Christ. Anyone can be forgiven. You can be gay and become saved. And that may not necessarily change who you are. Um, Deal with it. Now, the other side of that statement has to do with the moral clarity on this issue. That all sexual immorality, all sexual expression that is not under the union of a man and a woman falls under the Bible's definition of of immoral. But that doesn't make a gay person any different from an adulterer or a fornicator or any other category of sin for that matter. Okay, and and how do I want to say this? It is our insistence on singling out this issue that has pushed a cross section of people away from the church. Can we say, "I love you," and demonstrate that over time, and simultaneously say all of these behaviors are are wrong in the sense that they don't reflect? The, the divine nature of God. Um, and can we live in the, that impossible tension of, of that place that's so uncomfortable? Um, we need to. I'll say it that way. Um, all believers, including those who come to Christ gay, are called to high moral standards. We are called to reflect the purity and holiness of God in the way we live. Um, Honestly, we are far more forgiving of our fellow heterosexuals than we are of of those who are gay. Um, We forgive adultery, we forgive fornication, we we forgive all kinds of stuff. The gay thing is harder for us to forgive for some reason. 
We separate it out. God does not. And to that end, I'll, I'll say this. I recognize that is a very high calling and a, and a conflicted calling to tell a person essentially their only pathway towards reflecting the image of God through the way they live is celibacy. But Jesus was celibate. It's not, it's not a ridiculous um, calling. It's legitimate. Um, it's not very popular. But that's what Scripture leads me to and leaves me with is this incredible tension between love and purity. And that's really who Christ is, the one who sort of stretched himself out across that tension and said, here, I I love you. You're forgiven. Come in. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not afraid to address any human issue. Lord, we pray that we as your people would be those who are quick to forgive and understand and listen and care. That we would express your love and your compassion to this world around us in every category. Lord, that we would be willing to live in the tension that you call us to manifest in our hearts and our lives because you are there. Lord, that you would grow us, that you would strengthen us in our ability to join you in seeking and saving the lost. And at at all points, Father, lead us to be those who are loving. This we pray in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.